Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will visit the White House and Congress today, seeking more aid to fight off Russia's invasion. It's Tuesday, December 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Arizona's highest court will decide whether to reinstate an 1864 law banning abortion, a move that frustrates abortion rights advocates. We just feel like this is a baseless attempt to bring ideology back into a personal decision between a patient and their provider. Also this hour, we meet a mother who buys clean syringes for her daughter who uses opioids and immediately has second thoughts. What did you just do? Did you just make it easier for her? Did you just make it harder? Did you just give her permission? We'll hear more about her efforts to save her daughter's life and a preview of today's Labor Department report on inflation. Sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington today. He meets lawmakers on Capitol Hill this morning. This afternoon, he'll go to the White House to see President Biden. NPR's Mara Eliasson reports he's hoping to break a deadlock in Congress over new military funding for his fight against Russia. Zelensky and Biden are trying to convince Republicans on Capitol Hill to give Ukraine more assistance to defend itself against Russia's invasion. They say without more U.S. aid, Russia could win. Support in the GOP for Ukraine has been dropping. Some Republicans in Congress share former President Donald Trump's animus toward Ukraine. Trump's first impeachment was over pressure he put on Zelensky to give him information he could use against Joe Biden in return for U.S. weapons. But most Republicans say they will vote to give Ukraine more aid, but only if they get deep concessions on immigration policy. Biden says he's willing to compromise, but talks linking Ukraine aid and the border have stalled. Mara Eliasson, NPR News. The U.N. General Assembly is expected to vote on a resolution today calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Last week, the U.S. vetoed a similar resolution in the U.N. Security Council. Falling gasoline prices likely kept a lid on inflation last month. NPR's Scott Horsley reports we'll find out later this morning when the Labor Department releases its latest scorecard on the cost of living for November. Gasoline prices have tumbled sharply in recent weeks, which should help to offset the rising cost of other goods and services. Forecasters think today's report will show November's overall cost of living was about the same as the month before and about 3 percent higher than a year ago. The inflation scorecard comes just as the Federal Reserve begins its last policy meeting of the year. The central bank is widely expected to hold interest rates steady. Policymakers will also offer some projections this week about what they expect to happen to interest rates next year. While inflation has cooled substantially since hitting a four-decade high last year, prices are still climbing faster than the Fed's inflation target of 2 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A Minnesota judge has vacated the murder conviction of Marvin Haynes. He was convicted as a teenager and spent 19 years in prison for a 2004 murder he insisted he did not commit. This week, prosecutors agreed with him. Haynes expressed thanks to his sister and others for their support. If it wasn't for my sister and an innocent project, I wouldn't be here. Like, it took my sister. She, my, my sister lost so much trying to fight for me to get innocence. Like, she neglected herself in the process of me getting my life back. So, I mean, I, I could, words cannot describe what she means to me and my, and my family. Prosecutors say the Minneapolis Police Department conducted a badly flawed investigation. No forensic evidence linked Haynes to the crime. An eyewitness said he never got a good look at the suspect. Prosecutors say the killer is likely still at large. You're listening to NPR News.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. More turmoil is coming to light at the state's Cannabis Control Commission following the suspension of two of the agency's top managers. The commission's acting executive director suspended Chief Communications Officer Cedric Sinclair and Human Resources Director Justin Schrader last week. Two people with direct knowledge of the events tell WBUR that Schrader has since resigned. The reasons behind the suspensions remains unclear. The news comes while the agency's chair is also suspended. Members of the state's all-Democratic congressional delegation are pressing the Biden administration to expand student debt relief to low- and middle-income borrowers. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley testified at a Department of Education hearing on debt cancellation yesterday afternoon. President Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 in student debt for borrowers offered so much hope to people that believed they would never be able to start a family, open a business, or to achieve financial stability. The reach and impact of that historic plan should be the bare minimum of what the Department of Education produces. Senator Elizabeth Warren also testified yesterday she proposed capping debt at the amount the student originally borrowed and adding a provision for financial hardship. According to a government database, the remains of 39 Native people from Worcester, Franklin, and Hamden counties sit on museum shelves. New regulations that are expected to go into effect early next year will clarify a federal law that governs the return of Native objects from museums. Nancy Cohen reports that includes the remains of Native ancestors. Shannon O'Loughlin of the Association on American Indian Affairs says the new rules not only set a specific deadline, five years, to repatriate, they also clarify that just the location where the ancestors were found can be used to determine which tribe they belong to. It also clarifies that the museum's decision-making is reliant on tribal traditional knowledge because tribes are the primary experts of their own cultural heritage. The new rules restrict repatriation to federally recognized tribes. O'Loughlin would like to see other tribes included. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. The city of Worcester will open an emergency winter shelter today inside a former registry of motor vehicles. The old service center on Main Street will be available to adults experiencing homelessness. Organizers say there's enough room for 60 people. The Central Massachusetts Housing Alliance reports a 70 percent increase in the homeless population in Worcester since 2021. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st, Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics return tonight from a few days off to host the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's the first of two games in three days between the teams. Sunny today, it'll be in the mid-40s. Clear overnight with temperatures around freezing. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems, to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. 
And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will be in Washington, D.C. today to make one final push for Congress to approve billions more in funding for Ukraine's fight against Russia. That funding is being held up because Republicans want money for border security to be attached to it. They have until the end of the week. Now, we've talked before about the politics of this, but right now we wanted to focus on the battlefield implications. So we called retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He is the former director of European Affairs for the National Security Council. And now he directs the Think Tank Institute for Informed American Leadership. Good morning, Lieutenant Colonel. Thanks for joining us once again. Good morning, Michelle. Happy to be on with you again. So what are Ukraine's options if the U.S. Congress chooses not to continue to send money to Ukraine? So I just uh, finished writing a long um, analysis of 2024 for Ukraine uh, on my substack. And the outlook with with funding appropriated by Congress is bleak. Absent funding appropriated by Congress, it looks like a catastrophe. The challenges that Ukraine faces over the course of 2024 are insufficient resources being applied by uh, Western allies. Uh, I think we hit our high watermark in 2023 with what the West could pull out of its uh, depots and stockpiles. There is less coming right now, not sufficient industrial base um, manufacturing to to fill the the holes. That's a major problem. The Russians are also surging in their activity. They've allocated about 10% of their GDP, 40% of their state budget towards this war effort. They are now manufacturing lots of ammunition. They're producing Mm. drones. They're gaining superiority. Uh, And that doesn't include the fact that there's quite a possibility that after the presidential elections in Russia in March, Putin will feel even more uh, comfortable calling up thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of troops in a mass mobilization uh, with the intent of overwhelming Ukraine. So the bottom line is uh, it's it's a tough situation, even with funding. If if funding is not passed, um, it's a crisis. And this is a very, very dangerous game of brinksmanship being run by the Republicans. Can I just ask you, just to be sure I'm clear on this, you're saying that kind of Russia is stepping up its um, kind of... Uh, it's war preparations. It's stepping up its manufacturing. It's stepping up its production of of materials and so forth. I mean, we've seen Putin's overtures to China. There are reports of security arrangements with North Korea sort of happening. So are you saying that this right. is in preparation for the, 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 the expectation or the hope that the U.S. funding will not continue? They, they were doing this even without uh, any of the uh, machinations in, in our Congress or the absence of funding. They were just ramping up on the expectation that they needed to do more. They weren't being successful in the first you know year and a half of war. So over the course of the summer, they significantly ramped up. So we're, we're now in a situation where the gap between what the uh, Russians are applying to this war and what Ukraine could muster is is getting larger already absent funding, it becomes a chasm. So mm-hmm. this is why it's absolutely critical that uh, the Republicans stop playing games, uh, stop pandering to the base. There, I think ultimately you do have more Republicans uh, that are uh, supporting Ukraine's war effort, but uh, it's the base that, that uh, or the calculations around the base that is, is driving their uh, idea that they could extract concessions from the, the White House. And that is just simply dangerous. And that's why Zelensky is passing through. Uh, He is trying to, you know, use all his charisma and charm to try to uh, convince these Republican holdouts that this is absolutely essential, not just for Ukraine, but for U.S. national security. Okay, so let's say Congress does continue to fund Ukraine. 
Is there a smarter way to do this? There absolutely is. Um, so what I laid out in, in, in my Substack is the fact that we need to not just uh, accelerate the funding that we or the, the provision of systems that we have. So we can't have such a kind of slow, a methodical timeline on air power, on artillery. Uh, we need to ramp up the industrial base. We need to fundamentally change the way we train or help train the uh, Ukrainian forces. Their uh, staffs need to be trained for combined arms. Logistics is broken, so they can't maintain the things that we've provided them because of the way that we've, it's, it's entirely on us uh, that we've not provided them the materials to support our equipment that we've gifted them. So there's a number of things that we need to do. We just need to reformat for a much, much more contentious and difficult war. That is uh, the retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the former director of European Affairs for the National Security Council, and now he heads a think tank, the Institute for Informed American Leadership. Lieutenant Colonel, thanks so much for joining us once again. Thank you. Thank you. The man appointed to lead the prosecution of former President Donald Trump for interfering in the last election has made an extraordinary request. Yeah, special counsel Jack Smith wants the Supreme Court to fast track the case in what looks like an effort to make sure that Trump will face a jury before the 2024 election. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following the story and she's with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So, Carrie, I take it the reason this is a story is that it's pretty unusual for the Supreme Court to weigh in at this stage of a criminal case. What's the prosecution's argument for moving so quickly? Special counsel Jack Smith says this case is a matter of enormous public importance. He says the question is fundamental to democracy. Is a former president totally immune from criminal prosecution for acts committed when he was president? The Supreme Court has never answered that question. All we know is that presidents enjoy some immunity from civil lawsuits, and the Justice Department says sitting presidents can't be charged with wrongdoing. But here we are talking about a former president who's accused of plotting to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power that culminated in violence at the U.S. Capitol. So the judge in this case in Washington, D.C., has already set a trial date in March of 2024. How does that factor into the special counsel's request? If the Supreme Court waits for a lower appeals court to act on this case before it hears this central dispute about presidential immunity, that D.C. trial is really in jeopardy. Trump and his lawyers want to postpone the case until after the November election, and the Supreme Court usually finishes its work by June. So by asking for a speedy process now, the prosecutors are trying to make sure the high court resolves a key question before next summer, before the Republican National Convention and other big dates on the political calendar. So what kind of precedent is there for the Supreme Court to move so fast? You know, the prosecutors say the Supreme Court moved this quickly back in 1974 when President Richard Nixon refused to turn over White House tapes in the Watergate investigation. Steve Vladek, a law professor at the University of Texas, posted the high court had moved quickly in this way about 19 times since 2019. But former President Trump says this is a Hail Mary move from prosecutors. 
He said in a statement yesterday, this case is politically motivated and a sham, and there is no reason to rush it. Four of nine justices need to agree to hear the case in order for the high court to take it. Of course, Trump appointed three justices to the court, but they've been willing to rule against him on issues of substance. Either way, Trump's fate may be in the hands of the high court now. And the Supreme Court is also considering another issue related to the effort to overturn the last election. Would you tell us about that? Sure. Several people accused of taking part in the Capitol riot on January 6, 2021, want the high court to weigh in about the obstruction law they've been charged with breaking. It's an important issue because the Justice Department has used that same statute in hundreds of January 6 cases. And if the high court finds prosecutors overreach there, it could really take away a major tool for the Justice Department. Donald Trump faces that same charge in the D.C. case against him as well. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you. My pleasure. An announcement is expected today regarding the job status of Harvard President Claudine Gay. Gay and the presidents of MIT and the University of Pennsylvania have been under fire since testifying to Congress last week that calls for genocide might not necessarily violate campus codes of conduct. The president of the University of Pennsylvania has resigned under pressure, but MIT's president seems safe for now. As NPR's Tobia Smith reports, Harvard's president still enjoys significant public support. The executive committee of a Harvard alumni group is expressing unequivocal support for their, quote, exceptional university president. Let gay stay! What? Let gay stay! But the small group of students who turned out to rally in support of President Gay on campus yesterday were not quite as effusive. To many, it's just too soon to fire a president who was just inaugurated 10 weeks ago. And as Harvard student Jeremy Ornstein put it, it's wrong for a university to cave to outside pressure. We don't want to let donors and politicians dictate who gets to lead our university. And we want to be a pro-Palestinian student says it's especially important to resist calls for Gay's resignation that he says are all about her failure to protect Jewish and Israeli students, but not Muslim, Arab, or Palestinian students. He asked that his name not be used for fear of harassment and doxing, as many Harvard students accused of anti-Semitism or supporting Hamas have had their pictures posted online or on billboard trucks around town. I'm not happy with, with what she's done. But if the concern were, were general student safety, then I would be more sympathetic to calls for her to resign. But if the calls are simply on one side, I worry that the blowback towards students from a replacement to gay would be quite bad. Others on campus remain adamant that gay must go. Shabbos Kestenbaum, a Jewish divinity school student, blames the president for being a purist on free speech only when it's speech against Jews. She has let the calls for violence against Jewish people. She has let this become normalized at Harvard. I entirely blame her. She has let a lot of anti-Semitism at Harvard run rampant. Gay's defenders say slogans that some are objecting to mean different things to different people and should not be conflated with calls for genocide. As for Gay's future, one thing many agree on, the optics would not be good if Harvard fires its first black president and a black woman as one put it, it would definitely be ugly. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Massachusetts doesn't allow what are known as supervised consumption sites, places where drug use is monitored so people don't overdose and die. But in private, some friends and family members already do this for loved ones. Ahead at 5 735 on WB, on 90.9 WBUR will take you to one home-based overdose prevention project. Stay with us. It's 719. Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at GoddardHouse.org. And we need a vacation. With over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at WeNeedAVacation.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.gov. Israel claims the war in Gaza will eliminate Hamas as a military threat, but Hamas's popularity and influence appear to be growing among Palestinians in the West Bank. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. Clear skies and highs in the mid-40s today. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. Abortion is before Arizona Supreme Court today. The state could return to a near total ban. Catherine Davis-Young with member station KJZZ in Phoenix reports. When the U.S. Supreme Court last year returned abortion regulating powers to the states, Arizona had two abortion laws on the books. One passed last year outlaws abortions after 15 weeks. The other, which dates back to 1864, bans abortions in almost all cases. Abortion providers didn't know which to follow. It was a very dark time to be a physician. Dr. Jill Gibson is medical director for Planned Parenthood Arizona. As state courts have tried to work through the legal chaos, Planned Parenthood canceled appointments and sent patients out of state, only to then reopen with short staff and a new set of rules. But for almost a year now, there's been some clarity. A state appeals court ruled doctors could provide abortions up to 15 weeks. Now, the state's Supreme Court is reconsidering that ruling. Gibson is frustrated to be faced with legal uncertainty once again. That was decided, and we, you know, we're comfortable with that interpretation, and I think we all have been able to 
move forward past that point. And so we just feel like this is a baseless attempt to bring ideology back into a personal decision between a patient and their provider. In earlier phases of this case, Arizona's then-Attorney General, Republican Mark Burnovich, pushed courts to reinstate the older, more restrictive law. But the new Attorney General, Democrat Chris Mays, is no longer pursuing the case. Instead, Dr. Eric Hazelrig, medical director of a group of Phoenix-area anti-abortion pregnancy centers, has stepped in as an intervener. He's joined by Yavapai County Attorney Dennis McGrain. Dr. Hazelrig and Mr. McGrain are in this case to protect Arizona's pro-life law that protects these most vulnerable among us. Jacob Warner, attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, is representing Hazelrig and McGrain. His clients argue the Court of Appeals overlooked a critical piece of the 15-week law, which makes direct reference to the older law. Lawmakers were clear. What they said was that these row-era abortion regulations, they create no right to an abortion. And it doesn't repeal the old pro-life law. Justices may see a point there, says Barbara Atwood, professor of law with the University of Arizona. I think the legal argument that might be persuasive to them is that the uh, Court of Appeals was too creative in its effort to harmonize these laws. Plans Parenthood Arizona argues this case really isn't about whether abortion should be legal, but what the state should do when two statutes conflict. And Atwood says justices might agree. The justices may, in their personal lives, be very anti-abortion, but vote to affirm what the Court of Appeals did because they agree with that statutory method. And the justices, all appointed by Republican governors, are known to be conservative. One justice who has publicly accused Planned Parenthood of genocide has recused himself from the case. If the six remaining justices were to decide abortions are illegal in the state, except in life-saving circumstances, there is still a question of enforcement. I think that that's an unresolved issue. Arizona's Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, has issued an executive order giving the state's attorney general, not county attorneys, the final say when it comes to abortion. The attorney general has said she would not prosecute doctors in those cases. Oral arguments are set for today. It's not clear when the justices will give their decision. Whatever they decide, abortion advocates are already pursuing a 2024 ballot measure that would expand abortion access far beyond either of the laws before the court. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Davis-Young in Phoenix. By now, you've probably heard about all the big names who gathered this month at the United Nations COP28 climate conference in Dubai to try again to reach consensus on solutions to address the warming of the planet. Someone else was there, and you might have seen his work even if you didn't know his name. Wildlife photographer Dimitri Koch, who brought his images of animals. They don't have any voice. They cannot talk with us. So I hope that somehow, with my humble efforts, I can provide them a little bit of voice to speak with people through my photographs. His pictures highlight human-like qualities in the animal's expressions, a cute crab-eater seal with a hesitant gaze, a dancing penguin, a bicol seal waving. I'm trying to make them cute, to make them look like people in some situations. 
to have this emotional connection. During a trip to the uninhabited remote island of Koyuchin off the coast of eastern Russia, he stumbled onto polar bears. They had taken over an abandoned weather station. His images went viral after they were published in 2022. I got so many messages from people who told me this photograph opened my eyes to the problems of polar bears. The trip happened over the summer, and the bears hunting for scarce food traveled to the island. When people see the picture with these destroyed houses and the bears who invaded those houses, they start to think somehow, what is wrong with the climate? What is wrong with our politics? of the climate. More recently, Koch has snapped images of sperm whales on Mauritius Island and traveled to South Georgia Island and Antarctica. His travels have led him to a grim conclusion. Our grandkids won't see many things that we see right now. They will live on some other planet. But Koch, who's also an IT engineer, hopes his pictures of this planet will open people's eyes to the effects of climate change. I think even single photograph can change people's minds if it's powerful enough. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. A Labor Department report on November's inflation is expected out later this morning, just ahead of a Federal Reserve meeting where policymakers are expected to leave interest rates unchanged. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester, now through the 24th. Tickets from $25, BalletTheater.org. And Davis Malm. Their divorce attorneys are committed to protecting what's most important to you. DavisMalm.com. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.com. And Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at LakeChamplainChocolates.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington. He's due to meet with lawmakers on Capitol Hill today before talks with President Biden at the White House. As NPR's Giles Snyder reports, Zelensky is expected to press members of Congress to approve Biden's latest foreign aid request, which includes tens of billions of dollars in additional funding to Kyiv amid the ongoing war with Russia. House Republicans have been holding up President Biden's request for an aid package that includes more than $61 billion to help Ukraine battle Russia. They're insisting that any more aid be tied to changes to border and immigration policies that Democrats oppose. Following Russia's invasion, Congress approved more than $110 billion for Ukraine, but none since Republicans took over the House last January. The White House has warned that funding will run out by the end of the year if Congress does not act. Congress recently 
processes for the year on Friday. Zelensky is meeting with senators as well as House Speaker Mike Johnson before heading to the White House for talks with Biden and a joint press conference. Giles Snyder, NPR News. Special Counsel Jack Smith is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to consider whether former President Donald Trump can be prosecuted on charges of election interference. A federal judge ruled Trump can be prosecuted. Smith wants the nation's high court to step in. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Some of the families kill of the fam- some of the families of people killed or hurt in the Lewiston, Maine mass shooting are calling for stricter gun control laws. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. It's been almost seven weeks since a gunman opened fire in a bowling alley and pool hall in Lewiston, killing 18 people and injuring 13 others. After the worst mass shooting in Maine's history, people like Arthur Bernard are suddenly activists. He's pushing for new restrictions on the kind of weapon the shooter used to kill his son, Artie Strout. I understand gun rights. I understand people wanting to own guns and things. But assault rifles? They're not made for anything but killing. Some Maine lawmakers plan to push for stricter gun laws when the legislature convenes in January. There are also efforts at the federal level, even though gun control has long faced stiff resistance in Congress. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Milton is the latest community to approve zoning changes around T-stations. It's part of an effort to comply with the state's new law that requires communities served by the MBTA to make it easier to build multifamily housing. Brookline, Newton, and Somerville all recently approved zoning changes before the year-end deadline. Some Milton residents against the change tell the Boston Globe they plan to appeal. Immigrants in Massachusetts are once again eligible for state-funded food benefits. Governor Healy restored that policy earlier this month as part of a closeout spending bill. The state stopped offering supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits to immigrants more than 20 years ago. With the increase in people using the state's emergency shelter system, advocates say allowing families to shop at grocery stores will reduce traffic to food pantries. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Kaiba, providing technology solutions to government agencies in the health and human services space. Kaiba, K-Y-Y-B-A dot com. The Celtics will host the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight at the Garden. The Seas have won 11 of their last 14 games. Highs in the mid-40s today under sunny skies. A few clouds move in tonight. Temperatures will fall to the low 30s. A mix of sun and a few clouds tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s and it'll be windy. It's 34 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. The main characters in our next story are a mom named Renee and her daughter, Brooke. It begins with those fights, the ones that get worse during the teenage years. But then Brooke gets addicted to opioids, and Renee decides there's nothing she won't do to keep her only child alive. The outcome may challenge how you think about the drug overdose crisis. Here's reporter Martha Biebinger from WBUR in Boston. The arguments were about Brooke missing school, not having a job, and hanging out with a boy Renee didn't like. Renee responded like many parents would. She grounded Brooke and took away her cell phone. I was wanting to force her to do what I wanted her to do because my child was not raised this way. Brooke, then 16, got tired of feeling like a disappointment and moved out. Renee didn't object at the time, but regret set in because by age 18, Brooke was using opioids regularly. Renee often didn't know where Brooke was and whether she was dead or alive. NPR has agreed not to use full names in this story, and we've altered voices because some of what Renee and Brooke do could be illegal. Your door's not shut, you're gonna fall out and die. Thank you. To tell their story, Renee drives me around her small southern city. Past the parks and cheap motels where she'd occasionally see Brooke or someone with news about her only child. This yellow one with the red writing on it right there, she she stayed there a lot. Renee says Brooke only reached out when she needed something. One day, after four frantic weeks of unanswered calls and texts, Renee spotted Brooke walking down the road. She was beautiful. She's my baby. In that moment of joy, something inside Renee flipped. And she was alive. Her expectations, demands, blaming, all that energy spun toward a new goal, keeping Brooke alive. That's all that matters, you know. It's a realization that will transform and upend Renee's life. For Brooke, the encounter was just annoying. She was like, trying to get me to get in the car with her. I just wasn't having it. I was trying to get, go get some, you know. Brooke says her goal was to get away, fast. It was kind of like embarrassing when I saw her because I know my mama, she, she don't care where she's at or who's around. Yeah. She's going, you know, get her point across. In characteristic style, Renee plunged into the campaign to keep Brooke alive. She bought Narcan, the drug that can reverse an overdose, lots of it. She shows me that first order confirmation on her phone. Narcan deliveries put Renee back in touch with her daughter. Brooke looked reasonably healthy and not too thin, but her arms, where Brooke would inject, were a mess. Bruised and swollen and red. You know, I mean, obviously traumatized. Skin that was just been traumatized. Seeing Brooke's skin, Renee made a decision that many parents might not make. But Renee, relying on her medical training, could tell that Brooke's sores and scabs were from reusing needles. Dirty, blunt tips leave wounds. Sharing needles leads to more health problems, transmission of hepatitis C, HIV, and other viruses. Renee knew clean needles could improve her daughter's health. She also knew a needle she gave Brooke might deliver a fatal dose of fentanyl. Renee couldn't decide. What was the lesser of the two evils? The swirl of emotions that I had was just insane. Am I enabling? Renee ruminated on the guilt, anxiety, and fear for weeks. It just spun like a record. It just spun like a record, ma'am. 
But Renee realized that Brooke didn't care if she had a clean or dirty needle. She'd use whatever was around. The goal was to keep her daughter alive. So Renee shelved her doubts, ordered syringes, and helped Brooke avoid hep C and some other possibly deadly diseases. When the box of needles arrived, Renee drove to the trailer park where Brooke was staying. These crepe myrtles were so big then. Dotted with bright pink flowering bushes, the trailer park is the next stop on our tour of Renee's evolution. Pulled up right here and she came out and met me. It was a quick handoff. Brooke doesn't remember the exchange. She says she may have been high. Renee left in a panic, but she was too sick to drive. The debate kept pounding in her head. What did you just what did you just do? Did you just make it easier for her? Did you just make it harder? Did you just give her permission? Renee's concerns about giving Brooke needles faded as her daughter's sores healed. So Renee bought another box. Possession of drug paraphernalia is illegal in many states. Renee didn't know that as she ordered more and more syringes and Narcan. Oddly, Brooke always seemed to be out. She would give her stuff away. And here is Renee's next revelation about what it would take to keep her daughter alive. To help her meant I had to figure out how to help everybody else somehow. At first, everyone was just Brooke's friends. But within a few months, Brooke was running into strangers who had her mom's cell phone number. People that don't even know me, you know what I'm saying? I'll meet them and they're like, your mama is, that's my mama. <laughs> I love sharing because not everybody's got a mama like I do, you know? But all these surrogate children would call day and night, expecting Renee to drop everything and deliver needles or Narcan. It was absolute chaos. Renee couldn't keep up. Her credit cards maxed out. Exasperated, Renee opened her laptop and searched for help. There's got to be other people in the world doing this. How are you doing it and not losing your mind? She discovered people across the country doing similar work that they called harm reduction. Renee joined organizations offering free or discounted needles, Narcan, condoms, and stimulant use supplies. Today, Renee walks through a room packed with crates and cabinets. And then we've got alcohol pads and cookers and uh, tourniquets. And all She's learned to stop answering her phone at all hours. Now she has a regular delivery schedule. She's brought on volunteers and added a program to help victims of sex trafficking escape. I mean, we were doing it right. Some people didn't agree. A few years ago, a woman who lost her son confronted Renee. The woman said Renee gave the young man the needle he used for that final shot. It was an upsetting conversation, but Renee says she is at peace with what she did. It didn't break my heart that I gave him needles. It broke my heart that he was dead. But many people say handing out needles enables drug use, addiction, and death. Programs like the one Renee runs are illegal in parts of the country. Renee's beliefs are shared by leading medical groups who say harm reduction is a critical way to prevent diseases and fatalities. People don't use drugs. I'm enabling life. Brooke says many people don't appreciate the risks her mom takes to do this work, going into neighborhoods where gangs are active, where people may be desperate for money. I worry about her more than she knows, actually, because, like, you don't have to do anything that she's doing. Renee says she'd love to stop, but she can't abandon the mission, keeping Brooke and the 200-plus people she serves every week alive. It's getting harder with fentanyl, and Renee is taking more risks. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger. Renee's story continues this afternoon on All Things Considered.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, the Texas Supreme Court has ruled against a pregnant woman who was granted an abortion by a state district judge last week. Mid-40s and sunny today, mostly clear and low 30s tonight. Low 40s tomorrow, it'll be mostly sunny and windy. It's 34 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. A Cambridge comedy theater is permanently closing at the end of the month after more than 40 years in business. Leaders behind Improv Boston say the organization is no longer financially sustainable. The Central Square Theater will complete its final classes before ending regular operations on December 31st. Rhode Island-based Hasbro is planning to lay off 1,100 workers over the next two years. That accounts for, for close to 20 percent of the toy maker's workforce. The company blames the cuts on a slump in toy and game sales this holiday season. The layoffs will also result in the closure of Hasbro's Providence office. Biomed Realty's Cambridge office is teaming up with the city to provide local students with hands-on experiences in STEM-focused careers. The real estate company has nearly 6 million square feet of life science space in the greater Boston area. Its partnership with Cambridge aims to give students from minority backgrounds more pathways for careers in science and technology. It's 744. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. Dot com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Gasoline prices have fallen sharply in recent weeks. That's helping to keep overall inflation in check and may be improving the national mood as well. We'll get a report card on the cost of living later this month, just as the Federal Reserve prepares to hold its last policy meeting of the year. But NPR Scott Horsley is with us now with a preview. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. So what what is today's inflation report expected to show? 
It's expected to show that annual inflation in November was around 3%. Uh, that's less than half what it was at the start of the year. So certainly it is moving in the right direction. Uh, rents and health care costs were likely higher again last month. But forecasters think that was offset in part by cheaper airfares and hotel rooms, and especially by that big drop in gasoline prices. What's behind those falling prices? It's mostly a supply and demand story. Uh, demand for gas typically drops in the wintertime when people are not driving as much. We've also got ample supplies. Uh, domestic oil drillers are producing record amounts of oil. Uh, and the price of crude oil has come down sharply since September. Right now, the average price of regular gasoline is about uh, $3.14 a gallon. That's down almost a quarter a gallon in the last month. And AAA's Andrew Gross says gas prices could fall even further in the weeks to come. We're seeing about 60% of all gas stations nationwide are now selling gasoline below $3 a gallon. And it's possible the national average could dip, maybe by the end of this year, maybe early January, could slide below that $3 barrier. And of course, gas prices are some of the most visible prices in the country, so they tend to have an outsized impact on people's overall attitudes about the economy. Okay, so how about those feelings? How are people feeling? Not great, uh, but better than they were. Uh, the University of Michigan survey of consumer sentiment came out last Friday, and it showed a marked improvement. Uh, it basically reversed the deep funk that people had fallen into over the four previous months. Joanne Shu, who directs that University of Michigan survey, says the relief people have been feeling at the gas pump seems to be starting to sink in. I think consumers have been reserving judgment over the last few months over whether or not the easing of gas prices was actually going to stick. And after a few consecutive months of gas price declines, I think consumers are starting to feel more secure in the trend in the slowdown in inflation. Certainly people are not back in the rosy mood they were in before the pandemic, but attitudes have improved since last summer when they hit rock bottom just as gas prices hit an all-time high. And Shu says the improvement in consumer sentiment is, is really widespread. It cuts across people of all ages and incomes and political parties. The Federal Reserve begins a two-day meeting today. Do you have a sense of what the Fed thinks about the inflation outlook? Fed policymakers are certainly uh, reassured to see inflation moderating in recent months, but they are not so easily swayed by what happens to gas prices. Uh, we know those prices bounce up and down a lot, so the Fed tends to focus on prices other than energy and food. Uh, that so-called core inflation rate uh, was expected to be around 4% in November. It's come down, but it's still about twice as high as the central bank's 2% inflation target. Pretty much everybody thinks the Fed's going to hold interest rates steady this week. Uh, there's not much suspense about that. What people will be on the lookout for, though, is any signal of what might happen next year with interest rates and when the Fed might be ready to start cutting interest rates. Okay. NPR Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday morning on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition, we hear from family members of some victims killed in the Lewiston, Maine mass shooting who now say they want stricter gun laws in the state. It's 7.49.
WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and MITSloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. I'm Robin Young. President Biden has warned Israel's prime minister not to repeat the mistakes the U.S. made after 9-11. We will look at lessons from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and what they will tell us about the Israel-Hamas war with military analyst Andrew Basevich. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is on Capitol Hill this morning, where he'll plead with Congress to provide more funding for his country's fight against Russia. Special Counsel Jack Smith is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to rule on former President Donald Trump's claims he is immune to prosecution. And the Texas Supreme Court is denying a pregnant woman's request for what she says is a medically necessary abortion. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Clear skies in mid-40s today. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight and a few clouds move in. Mostly sunny in low 40s tomorrow with some gusty winds. It's 35 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. Hannah Adyan recognized something familiar after Hamas attacked Israel and Israel began its punishing response in Gaza that's been going on for two months now. Media coverage of the bloodshed and suffering in the besieged Gaza Strip was once again painting the lives of Palestinians in broad strokes, a faceless people somehow complicit in their own suffering. Alian, a Palestinian-American novelist, poet, and clinical psychologist, wrote in the New York Times how, in this moment, Palestinian people are being stripped of their humanity. I called up Alian to talk about what she wrote. There was kind of what I think of as sort of the first phase emotionally for myself, at least, and for a lot of people that I know, which was sort of this frenetic, like, oh, my God, like people are not seeing things, right? We I, we must get them to see. We must get them to understand. We must get them to, to humanize. Um, we must get them to understand what is at stake if the dehumanization continues. And I think it feels like there is a new chapter now where it's more grim and it's more heart-wrenching in some ways, which is that I think a lot of us are having to accept the fact that many do see, you know, that it isn't so much a matter anymore of how can we get people to witness something that many people have seen it and have, you know, they've seen the names written on limbs, they've seen the hospitals be evacuated, they've seen the, the infants left behind that many have seen it and have deemed it to be an an acceptable cost. Wow. So you also write about how you don't hesitate and you don't want anyone to hesitate to condemn the killing of innocent people, innocent children, innocent civilians, Jewish life, Palestinian life. But you also raise the point that if you only find shock and distress among certain brutalized bodies, then what does that say? If you could just speak more on that, 
We're all raised on different stories and different narratives about ourselves, about people in the world, about who is safe, who is not safe, who is worthy of protection, who is worthy of being humanized. None of us are exempt from that. Mm -hmm. And it is our responsibility to start to investigate the narratives we've been told. You know, it's our responsibility to pay attention to, ooh, when I hear a member of this community say something, when I hear them start to tell their story, I feel something in me close up. I feel immediately a flare of something defensive. And so when that happens, when you feel that closing off, that looking away, that not wanting to witness, I would say the first thing, perhaps even the most powerful thing, is just to notice that it's happening. Mm. To start to say, that's so interesting. For me, when people who are blank start to tell their story, I immediately assume they're not telling the truth. We saw it with Biden when he made that statement about the numbers of Palestinian dead. I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. And it was I'm done sure so easily. And it's a price of you know, I don't, there war. was like no flinching in doing it. And the real problem with dehumanization, right, the really sneaky thing that dehumanization does, perhaps the most damaging thing it does, is it delegitimizes the dehumanized from being able to speak on their own experience. We are no longer considered legitimate sources of information. We're not considered legitimate sources even of the, our dead or our suffering. And so it puts people in a position where they are effectively being silenced without having to do the, the more direct efforts of silencing. Because no matter what they say, there's doubt around it. There's a question mark. There's a turning away. Wanting the humanization of my people isn't a zero-sum thing. It doesn't mean that I want to take that humanization away from anyone. The idea that Palestinians should have equal rights, should have equal access to resources, that's something that I want for everybody. And I would be wary of, of spaces or narratives that try to pit the desire for equality against equality elsewhere. Your book, Salt Houses, a novel on a Palestinian family, it was praised by a lot of readers as humanizing. People would come up to you and say, it was, it's a human story, you humanize the conflict. If you could just talk about hearing those words and, and your reaction to them. I mean, I think there's something about being reminded that a group to which you belong has been so thoroughly subjected to to certain kinds of language and characterizations and and tropes that people forget they forget those are real people that right now people digging through rubble are real people they are people like you and like myself and like anybody listening to this they love their children just like we love our children. They want life just like we want life. They get thirsty. I don't get any less thirsty than somebody that's in Gaza. I don't get any less hungry. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't bleed any less. And I think that there can be this way in which, especially when the numbers start to balloon, you know, and they become higher and higher and it starts to intensify. Like, I think there's something... There's something in that where people, it starts to become kind of a conceptual topic, right? The innocence of Gaza, you know, becomes kind of like a talking point or it becomes a matter of debate or that alone is heart-wrenching. Mm. 
to feel like you have to prove your humanity or watch people who look like you, who share a language with you, who share a history with you, have to prove their humanity. Yeah. It is a constant exercise in heartbreak. It's very painful to think about how about a month ago, children, children, a child is a child, gathered and spoke in a language that was not their first language. Since the 7th of October, in a press conference to basically beg the international community for help. We come now to shout and invite you to protect us. And help didn't come. We want to live, we want peace. I think perhaps one of the most painful parts of this is asking the question, why are so many unmoved by that? Hala Alian is a Palestinian-American writer and clinical psychologist. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more coverage and for differing views and analysis, go to npr.org slash Updates. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Texas Supreme Court has overturned a lower court's decision to grant a pregnant woman an abortion, despite the state's near-total ban on the procedure. It's Tuesday, December 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is visiting Washington to lobby for additional funding for his country's fight against Russia. You can count on Ukraine, and we hope just as much to be able to count on you. Also this hour. I understand gun rights. I understand people wanting to own guns and things. But assault rifles? They're not made for anything but killing. In the wake of the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, family members of some victims are calling for stricter gun laws. And the UK's prime minister faces a revolt from within his own party over his plan to send undocumented immigrants to Rwanda. Sunny in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The scheduled end of the U.N. climate summit in Dubai has passed. NPR's Nathan Rott reports countries are still looking for consensus. It's not unusual for the annual U.N. climate conference known as COP to run long. There are representatives from nearly every country in the world here. And the issues they're talking about, for example, shifting the world's economies away from climate warming fossil fuels, yeah, they're contentious. Divisions remain between some of the most vulnerable and least polluting countries and those whose economies are largely based on oil and gas, with the latter preferring a deal at this COP that focuses more on cutting emissions from fossil fuels. 
Others, particularly small island states that are already being overrun by sea level rise, want stronger commitments. These nations say endorsing a deal that allows a continued long-term use of fossil fuels would be like signing a death certificate. Nathan Robb, NPR News, Dubai. Today could be the last day of testimony in the New York Attorney General's $250 million civil fraud suit against former President Donald Trump. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports the AG's office will wrap up with a cross-examination of a Trump expert witness, followed by two rebuttal witnesses. Even before this 10-week trial began, New York Supreme Court Judge Arthur N. Goron ruled that Donald Don Jr. and Eric Trump are liable for persistently and repeatedly lying about statements of financial condition and ordered the Trump family to start the process of relinquishing control of its business. Since the beginning of October, the AG has presented evidence that the Trump family conspired to falsify business documents, allowing it to reap hundreds of millions of dollars in ill-gotten profits it may have to return to the state. The Trumps have argued there was no victim, though New York law says you're still not allowed to lie as your business model. A verdict is expected in late January. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Recovery efforts are ongoing in Tennessee. Last weekend, several tornadoes killed six people and damaged hundreds of homes and businesses. A Kroger supermarket in the town of Springfield was hit. From member station WPLN, Char Daston reports, local residents are stepping up to help their neighbors. A steady stream of drivers line up outside the town's Walmart to pick up free bottled water. Carlos Perez lives right by the damaged Kroger, but the tornado just missed him. That night, he helped some elderly neighbors who lost their car in the storm. They were asking people a ride home, and nobody answered until I came, and then what's it called? I gave them a ride home, and they they were really worried about their house being destroyed, but thankfully it wasn't. Across town, contractors were clearing and repairing the Kroger. Workers had to contend with downed power lines and numerous damaged cars. For NPR News, I'm Char Daston in Nashville. On Wall Street, stock futures are higher at this hour. This is NPR. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington today. He'll go to Capitol Hill this morning to meet lawmakers. He'll urge them to provide more USA to help Ukraine fight Russia. Later, he'll meet President Biden at the White House. Voters in Oklahoma City are holding a vote today. It involves the city's NBA team, the Oklahoma City Thunder. From member station KGOU, Logan Layden reports... Residents are deciding whether to adopt a new sales tax to build a nearly $1 billion arena for the team. The Paycom Center currently hosts the Thunder, but it's one of the smallest arenas in the NBA and more than two decades old. Today, voters in Oklahoma City face a choice. Approve a 1% sales tax to build a new, roughly $900 million facility that proponents of the measure say will keep the team in OKC until at least 2050, or face the possibility of losing the team to another city. The Thunder's ownership group is pledging to kick in only about $50 million toward a new arena, which is a much smaller piece of the pie than other owners have paid for their arenas. For NPR News, I'm Logan Layden in Oklahoma City. The Wyoming Supreme Court hears a case today involving whether abortion qualifies as health care. Two Republican state lawmakers and an anti-abortion group are demanding the right to intervene in the case. They want to defend Wyoming's bans on abortion because these have been blocked by state courts. In Arizona, that state Supreme Court will hear arguments today over two conflicting laws. One bans nearly all abortions in Arizona. The other law bans abortions at 15 weeks. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, 
in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Two top managers at the state's Cannabis Control Commission have been suspended, and one has since resigned. That's on top of the commission's chair, who is already suspended by the state treasurer. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, it's the latest sign of turmoil at an embattled agency. The commission's acting executive director suspended chief communications officer Cedric Sinclair and human resources director Justin Schrader a week ago. That's according to two people with direct knowledge of the events who are not authorized to speak publicly. HR director Schrader has also since resigned. State Senator Michael Moore says the suspensions further highlight the need for scrutiny of the commission. This agency to have lost basically all of its management team in 10 to 11 months I think that signifies that there's a problem there. The reasons for the suspensions remain uncertain. Neither the commission nor the two managers would comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. State officials are walking back a plan to create a recovery campus at Shattuck Hospital in Boston. They say the $550 million expansion is too expensive. The state tells the Boston Globe it plans to work with Boston Medical Center, which is leading the development, to scale back the proposal. Those against the proposal say the campus should be built somewhere other than Franklin Park, where the Shattuck is located. Governor Healy today hosts a ceremonial signing of her new economic development plan. Healy's plan focuses on industries, including artificial intelligence and robotics, to bring more jobs to the state. It also aims to increase housing and improve infrastructure. The package still needs approval from the state legislature. Massachusetts plans to distribute $20 million in state aid to nearly 350 farmers across the Commonwealth. The money is meant to help them recover after freezing temperatures and flooding damaged their crops earlier this year. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. The Celtics are back home tonight to play the Cleveland Cavaliers. Sunny today, it'll be in the mid-40s, clear overnight with temperatures around freezing, sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. A Texas woman who filed a petition to have an abortion there has left the state to get the procedure. The state's attorney general blocked an earlier court ruling allowing her to have the procedure, but the Texas Supreme Court ruled late Monday that she did not meet the requirements to get an abortion. Texas law currently bans abortion as long as a fetal heartbeat is detected with a few narrow exceptions. Late last month, when Kate Cox was 20 weeks pregnant, she was told that her her fetus has a genetic condition that is almost always fatal. Her doctors say her health and the ability to have more children in the future are at risk. And court documents say Cox, who's 31 and already the mother of two young children, has visited the emergency room three times due to pregnancy complications. Molly Duane is senior staff attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights. She's representing Cox and her husband, and she is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Ms. Duane. Good morning. Can I just start by asking, how is Kate Cox doing? Well, um, 
Medically, she is doing all right. You know, we have been very focused on getting her the medical care that she needs, which is an abortion. I want to be clear about that. But she is also feeling very disappointed and, and frankly shocked at how her state has failed her. I mean, essentially what has happened over the last week, which, you know, perhaps is a short time to a court, but is a very long time to a pregnant person with an emergent health condition, is that Everyone in her state has said they can't take responsibility for the human suffering that she is in, that she is going through, not the courts, not the medical board, and certainly not the attorney general. So it's it's been, I think, a very disappointing and, and challenging time for, for all of us. You know, Texas abortion law does allow abortions in the case of a medical emergency or a major bodily injury. It would seem that having her, your future fertility at risk would would cover that, would be covered under that. Why wasn't Kate Cox included in that exception? I mean, this is what we've been saying all along, is that the medical exceptions to these abortion bans, Texas primary among them, don't make any sense. Doctors don't understand what this language means. And no one knows how close to death a patient needs to be. And in the two years that these abortion bans have been in effect in Texas, the attorney general and officials for the state have remained eerily silent. They have refused to tell anyone what the exception means. And all we know now is that no one thinks that Kate Cox was sick enough. And that should be truly chilling because it means, I think, that the exception doesn't exist at all. And I, I think any regular person can look at her case and say, well, surely Kate should qualify. So I guess my question is, if she doesn't, who does? Yeah, tell us more about the Supreme Court ruling. And, and it's, it's, it's actually fairly lengthy, so we don't have time to read it. People can look it up online. What, what's your reaction to it? And did, did you expect a different result? You know, I always remain hopeful. I've been litigating abortion rights cases for nearly a decade. And, you know, I, I always bring cases hoping that I'll win. But I, I've been disappointed in enough times to know that, that this result was not unexpected, right? Um, and I, all I can say is that Texans should look at this, should look at how the attorney general really was harassing the doctors and the hospitals who are trying to provide Kate with care and the ways in which the Texas Supreme Court first said, you know, we need a little bit more time to think about this, such that Kate had to spend the entire weekend in limbo, in bed, not sure what to do. And then, you know, late on Monday said, well, actually, it wasn't enough. And I just, I need people to understand how extreme these abortion bans are. But at the same time, I do want to emphasize, you know, we named Kate and her husband in this lawsuit to protect them both. I was going to ask you about that. Why is her husband a, uh, a party to this? Well, so the abortion ban that you mentioned at the at the top that uh, applies when there is a fetal or cardiac activity of any kind, that is a vigilante lawsuit, which says that anyone in the world can file a lawsuit against Ms. Cox's husband if she receives an abortion in Texas and the attorney general thinks that it was illegal. But I want to be clear that because Kate and her husband have traveled out of state, they are not liable under those laws anymore. And I'm seeing just a ton of misinformation about okay. this. And and that is that is troubling because the cruelty here is the point. That is why Texas has, fi has created such a law. 
It makes people fearful that they can't do anything, that they can't leave their state. But if she seeks care out of state mm -hmm. in a place where it is legal, no one can come after her. And I want people to understand that. Okay. Um, before we, well, we don't have, she have time to answer this question, but it would seem that the opinion puts a lot on doctors. And I think perhaps that's the next conversation that we should have uh, when we have time. Molly Duane is a senior staff attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights. Ms. Duane, thank you for speaking with us. Thanks so much. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is back in Washington, D.C. Putin must lose. The whole world is watching us. Nearly a year ago, he made a surprise trip to the U.S. where he was heralded in Congress as a hero, leading a brave fight against Russia's Vladimir Putin. The situation today is quite different. NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyson is with us now to tell us more about why it's quite different and how it's quite different. Good morning, Mara. Good morning. So what is President Zelensky trying to achieve today? What he's trying to do really is a last-ditch effort to get U.S. funding. He says he needs for his country's fight against Vladimir Putin. You just heard him say that. I think today you'll hear Zelensky and President Biden both argue that if aid is not forthcoming, Putin may win. This is Zelensky's third trip to Washington since Putin invaded Ukraine in February of 2022. And that year, Congress approved more than $112 billion in aid for Ukraine. But that money is almost out. And a lot has changed since then, as you said. Zelensky is no longer the hero that he was last year. The Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russia has stalled. Public support here in the U.S. has fallen as the war has dragged on. And support among Republicans on Capitol Hill has fallen even faster. So, you know, traditionally, the Republican Party has seen itself as strong on defense and national security. What happened with Ukraine to change that? Well, some Republicans in Congress share the animus of their party's leader, former President Donald Trump. He doesn't like Ukraine at all. Remember, his first impeachment in 2019 was over pressure he put on Zelensky to give him information he could use against Joe Biden during the election campaign. And he said many positive things about Vladimir Putin. But most Republicans say they want deep concessions on immigration policy in order to vote for this aid. And that includes pro-Ukrainian senators like Mitt Romney and Mitt Mitch McConnell. And border policy, immigration policy is where these negotiations have focused and where they have stalled. Why has U.S. border policy become the bargaining chip in this funding battle? It seems unrelated to Ukraine. It's completely unrelated to Ukraine, but the situation at the border is the top issue for Republican voters. Immigration policy is one of the most intractable issues in U.S. politics. It's something Democrats and Republicans engage on every couple of years and always fail to make headway on. This time around, Republican voters are very concerned about migration across the southern U.S. border, and they've been joined by blue state governors and mayors who also feel immigration is out of control because they're having a hard time grappling with large numbers of asylum seekers who are being bussed into their cities. Now, Joe Biden says he's willing to discuss compromise. In the past, he has made compromises with Republicans to pass bipartisan bills on infrastructure and microchips and gun safety. But in this case, immigration is such a good issue for Republicans politically heading into 2024. They don't have a lot of incentives to make a deal. They can just attack Biden for being soft on immigration. So it's not clear what price Democrats could pay in terms of border policy to get a deal. And that puts Zelensky and Biden and Ukraine in a very, very tough spot. That is NPR's Mara Lyson. Mara, thank you. You're welcome.
There's some sad news for fans of the Korean pop band BTS, who call themselves the ARMY. Leaders of that so-called ARMY are now all in the real ARMY. Yesterday, singers RM and V from BTS joined the rest of their bandmates to start their 18-month compulsory military service in South Korea. And while the K-pop stars embrace their duty, their fan base is taking it a little harder, like this van who goes by the name of Face of E on TikTok. So to cure the enlistment depression, I went to Koreatown. I ate a lot of good Korean food. Anyway, that was my way of coping, because I'll be missing them. Food is also my way of coping, but a better cure might be listening to their music. What you're hearing is the group's 2020 hit, Dynamite, which helped propel the band to popularity beyond Korea during some hard times. It was really during COVID. We're all on YouTube a little bit more than before. They announced that they were going to do these online concerts, and their three online concerts are the highest grossing online concerts of all time. That's Grace Cow, a professor of sociology at Yale University. She says BTS's global reach inspired her to study the K-pop genre and that the group's global impact goes beyond music. I noticed how quickly their fans went to defend them when they experienced racism. Fans were not going to let people get away with that. Because of them, suddenly racism against Asian Americans was no longer tolerated. Kao says although BTS are not the first Korean artist to go global, the group's influence is changing the way Asians are seen in America. The fact that they were on magazine covers, but not as someone that's geeky or martial artist, but as regular people that are seen as attractive, right, that are musicians that just seem like regular people. Kao also says that BTS's popularity has contributed to South Korea's economy and beyond. Those artists have a really tremendous amount of influence. K-pop artists promote the country directly and indirectly. BTS was the ambassador for Seoul for many years. Now, it's unclear if the group will be allowed to sing while they're enlisted, but Cal says there are plenty of K-pop artists to explore before the group is expected to reunite in 2025. Um, excuse me, Layla, there is only one BTS. <laughs> Sorry, Michelle, I won't do that again. <laughs> This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBWAR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, the U.K. Parliament is expected to vote today on revisions to a controversial plan to deport undocumented migrants to Rwanda. It's 820. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales, committed to going beyond the classroom by helping students develop networks and experience in fields like healthcare, business, and cybersecurity. And Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. Israel claims the war in Gaza will eliminate Hamas as a military threat, but Hamas's popularity and influence appear to be growing among Palestinians in the West Bank. 
with more on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Clear skies and highs in the mid-40s today. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Almost seven weeks ago, a gunman opened fire in a bowling alley and pool hall in Lewiston, Maine. He killed 18 people and injured 13 others. Families of the victims are still trying to cope with the tragedy. As WBWAR's Anthony Brooks reports, some are speaking out on the need for stricter gun control laws. Decorations are up and holiday music plays in many of the stores along Lisbon Street in downtown Lewiston. But there are also signs reading Lewiston Strong, reminders that this city is dealing with deep grief. After the worst mass shooting in Maine's history, people like Arthur Bernard are suddenly activists. He's pushing for new restrictions on the kind of weapon the shooter used to kill his son. There has to be some basic common sense here, and what does it take Bernard was playing pool with his son, Artie Strout, at Shemengi's Bar and Grill on the night of the shooting. Arthur headed home early while his son stayed on at the bar. You know, I was packing up my stick, and I says, all right, kid, I says, I'll talk to you later. He says, I love you, I'll call you later. And I hadn't driven a mile, and I got a call. Artie Strout, 42 years old, married with five kids, was among the dead. The last picture on Artie's cell phone was of his dad holding a pool cue not long before the night turned so dark. The killer, Army Reservist Robert Card, who took his own life toward the end of a two-day manhunt, had several weapons, including a semi-automatic Ruger AR-10 rifle he'd purchased legally. I understand gun rights. I understand people wanting to own guns and things. But assault rifles? They're not made for anything but killing. It's been quite an experience that none of us ever thought we'd ever face in our life. Leroy Walker is a city councilor in Auburn, just across the Androscoggin River from Lewiston. His son Joe was working as the manager at Shemengi's on the night of the shooting. When the news broke, Leroy Walker began a desperate effort to learn if his son survived. Finally, state police delivered the news that the family had feared. My son had been shot and killed at the scene. We found out that my son was a hero, that he had picked up a knife somehow and was headed towards the gunman, and and the gunman, of course, shot him uh, in the stomach area twice. At the station restaurant in Lewiston, owner Kathy LaBelle knew Joe Walker well. LaBelle also owns Shemengi's, which she says is now closed for good. She wasn't there the night of the shooting because she'd taken the day off, but she's grieving for the loss of Joe Walker. Can you tell me something about him? Other than he was amazing, 
He was my right hand. LaBelle says she's not surprised that Walker put his life on the line to try to stop the gunman. Joe would never back down from anybody for anything. So I knew if somebody walked in shooting like it happened, Joe would not have just ran out of the building. And he always told me, I'm not afraid. I said, but I am. Joe Walker was 57. He left behind a wife and their blended family of two children and three grandchildren. As a result of the shooting, his father, Leroy Walker, says he now favors tougher gun control, though he wouldn't go as far as an outright ban on assault weapons. But there needs to be some way to control how these weapons are fired to kill people. One that can fire 30 or 60 or 90 shots off and to be able to kill people in seconds, that needs to change somehow. That's what I see. Maine has a long tradition of gun ownership and hunting, but now some state lawmakers plan to push for stricter gun laws when the legislature convenes in January. That's already happening at the federal level, even though gun control has long faced stiff resistance in Congress. Democratic Congressman Jared Golden had opposed an assault weapons ban, but following the shootings in his hometown of Lewiston, he said he now favors one. And Maine Senator Angus King, an independent, is co-sponsoring legislation that stops short of a ban but would limit the number of rounds these weapons could carry. The key here is that in the midst of a mass shooting, it's when the shooter has to reload that there's an opportunity either for people to escape or to disarm the shooter. We think that initiative really has no chance of going anywhere. David Trahan is executive director of the Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, a gun rights organization with a lot of influence. The group helped write Maine's yellow flag law, which is supposed to provide a way for police to take guns away from people who are deemed by a doctor to be a risk to themselves or others. In the case of the Lewiston shooter, it didn't work despite multiple warnings that he was suffering from a mental health crisis. Again, David Trahan. There were plenty of laws on the books that should have caught this guy, but the people that have the responsibility did not initiate the tools that they had to protect the public. For some reason, this guy fell through the cracks. Trahan embraces a familiar pro-Second Amendment argument that laws should focus on mental health, not guns. But gun control advocates say states with the lowest rates of gun violence, like Massachusetts, do both. They have red flag laws, mandatory background checks, bans on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Arthur Bernard says Maine should follow suit to spare more families from suffering, even if it's too late to save his son, Artie. His daughter, Brianna, turned 14 six days after this happened. You know, her mom has been trying to talk to her about what she wants for Christmas. You know, she keeps telling her mom, you can't give me what I want. Bernard's grief is shared by a growing number of Americans. Since his son and 17 others were killed in Lewiston in late October, there have been at least five other mass shootings across the country. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. Centrist Donald Tusk has taken office as Poland's new prime minister, paving the way for a shift back to a pro-EU government after years of conservative rule that many believed eroded democratic norms. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. With over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries, free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday, harvardartmuseums.org, and Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. With inflation pressures in the U.S. economy easing, the Federal Reserve is expected to leave interest rates unchanged at this week's policy meeting. The two days of talks get underway today in Washington. Analysts will be looking for clues on whether policymakers and Fed Chair Jerome Powell might consider cutting interest rates sometime next year. Ukraine's president is in Washington for meetings on Capitol Hill and at the White House. NPR's Mara Liason says Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to urge members of Congress to approve President Biden's request for tens of billions of dollars in additional U.S. aid to Kyiv. Zelensky and Biden are trying to convince Republicans on Capitol Hill to give Ukraine more assistance to defend itself against Russia's invasion. They say without more U.S. aid, Russia could win. Support in the GOP for Ukraine has been dropping. Some Republicans in Congress share former President Donald Trump's animus toward Ukraine. Trump's first impeachment was over pressure he put on Zelensky to give him information he could use against Joe Biden in return for U.S. weapons. But most Republicans say they will vote to give Ukraine more aid, but only if they get deep concessions on immigration policy. Biden says he's willing to compromise, but talks linking Ukraine aid and the border have stalled. Mara Liason, NPR News. This is NPR News. A new case study finds Russian forces are targeting health care in Ukraine to degrade the opposition. NPR's Ari Daniel says the results have been published by several human rights organizations. The study expands on earlier evidence of Russia's attacks on Ukraine's health system. It says that medical workers have been detained and threatened, that Russia has repurposed health facilities for military bases and other non-medical purposes, and that in some cases, Ukrainians only receive health care if they change their nationality to Russian. Sam Zarifi is the executive director of Physicians for Human Rights, one of the groups that co-authored the report. What's absolutely clear under human rights law is that even when you're occupying a territory, you have to ensure that the population does get access to health care. Zarifi says these efforts amount to a strategy intended to control Ukraine's civilian population. Ari Daniel, NPR News. The U.S. Air Force has disciplined 15 personnel as a result of a massive leak of classified documents. A member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, Jack Teixeira, is accused of leaking sensitive information from the 102nd Intelligence Wing at Otis Air National Guard Base, where he worked. A report from the Air Force Inspector General says multiple officials failed to take action despite Teixeira's suspicious activities. He's pleaded not guilty to the charges. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
Harvard's president will stay on the job. The Harvard Corporation, which is the school's highest governing body, just issued a statement unanimously reaffirming its support for President Claudine Gay. The group says it believes she is the right person to help the Harvard campus heal amid allegations of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Gay faced criticism for her congressional testimony last week on dealing with those issues. The Massachusetts Secretary of Education says he's working through the challenges posed by the thousands of new migrant families in the state shelter system. Patrick Tutwiler told WBUR's Radio Boston that the state is committed to giving every student access to a high-quality education. The Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has been incredible in terms of offering supports around uh, ESL instruction, lots of guidance around how to uh, service the needs of students who are trauma impacted. He says schools have also received financial support from the state to help with transporting the new students to and from school. The state is seeking federal help for people affected by a flash flood in Lemonster. The city says the flood back in September led to more than 1,400 reports of damage. That totals more than $30 million in damage, including repairs that had to be made to roads and the commuter rail. There's no timeline for when a response from the Biden administration is expected. It's 834. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics will be at the Garden tonight to play the Cleveland Cavaliers. Highs in the mid-40s today under sunny skies. A few clouds move in tonight. Temperatures will fall to the low 30s. A mix of sun and a few clouds tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s and it'll be windy. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldin. A big vote is scheduled for later today in the UK Parliament on a plan to deport undocumented migrants to Rwanda in Central Africa, no matter where they're from originally. The British government has signed a deal with Rwanda to take the immigrants the UK doesn't want. Human rights groups have criticized the plan. British and European courts have blocked it. But the British Prime Minister is pushing ahead, and his political future could depend on it. For more on all this, NPR's Lauren Freyer joins me now from London. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. So who does the UK plan to deport to Rwanda? These are like Syrians, Afghans, pretty much anyone else who arrives in England by boat without a visa. And instead of the UK hearing their asylum claims, Rwanda would do it. The idea is to basically offshore an overloaded and underfunded UK immigration system to Rwanda in Central Africa. The UK has paid Rwanda about $300 million so far to take these people. Supporters call this sort of like a creative solution for the UK to control its borders. But nobody has been deported to Rwanda yet. Why is that? 
It's because UK and European courts have struck this down. They have ruled that Rwanda may not be a safe third country for all of these migrants, some of whom are fleeing persecution elsewhere. And so UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak revised the plan to try to address all of these legal concerns. And that is what Parliament is voting on today. So what did he change? And is there an expectation that this will pass? I mean, that is the like 300 plus million dollar (laughs) question. Um, Sunak's new version declares that Rwanda is a safe country, like writes that into UK law. It also declares that the UK government has the authority to ignore some European human rights laws. Um, That Mm. is debatable legally, but Rishi Sunak says he's willing to even pull out of human rights treaties if the courts don't allow him to go through with this. Here he is is at a news conference sounding pretty exasperated and angry last week. It is your government, not criminal gangs or indeed foreign courts, who decides who comes here and who stays in our country. So he's trying to address these human rights concerns that courts have brought up. But at the same time, he's trying to, like, act really tough on immigration amid a revolt from hardliners in his own conservative party who are accusing him of watering down this bill and not being tough enough. Here is one of those critics, a fellow conservative MP. His name is Marc Francois. The bill overall provides a partial and incomplete solution. So Francois spoke to reporters yesterday basically threatening to vote against his own prime minister's bill. And a lot of Sunak's fellow conservatives have said the same. So it's not at all clear that the prime minister has the votes to get this through. So what happens if it doesn't pass? It looks really bad for Sunak. I mean, it'll show basically that he doesn't have the backing of his own party, and then anything could happen. They could vote him out as party leader and replace him, have a leadership contest and replace him as prime minister. He could then call fresh elections to try to thwart that and stay in party, in power. But all of that spells political instability for the UK. And, you know, this is one more example of conservatives doubling down on immigration as a populist issue And we've seen that in the UK, we've seen that across Europe, and for that matter, in the US. But I have to say, polls show here in the UK, immigration is not actually voters' top issue. And so this could be really risky for ruling conservatives. NPR's Lauren Freyer in London. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. Thank you. UN climate talks are wrapping up in Dubai. Some of the conversation there has focused on how to get young people to be part of the larger solution to climate change. An answer to that question can be found outside a school cafeteria in Los Angeles. Kaylee Wells from member station KCRW has this report. One year ago, the kids at a private K-8 school in Los Angeles called the Wesley School started to fill these five-foot-tall containers with food waste. An unfinished burrito, the rejected side of carrots... This is their first ever harvesting ceremony, and they're pretty excited for the big reveal. Want to crack this baby open and see what we got in here? Local farmer-turned-composting consultant Stephen Winbrandt has taught the teachers and students how to do this. What I want to ask you is, what does this smell like? Oh, it smells smells earthy. smells earthy. It doesn't stink. Yeah. More than 5,000 pounds of food waste has been turned into compost so far. The kids already know why composting is good for the climate, thanks to their science teacher, Joanna Hampton-Walker. Because if it goes in the landfill, it's just more production of methane. 
And methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases that warms the planet. LA's answer to that problem is its new organics recycling bins. It's easier to let the city whisk the food waste away to an industrial compost facility. But that's not the point, says Hampton Walker. When it's invisible like that, they don't see it. They know, but it doesn't sink in. So when sixth grader Finn saw the finished compost pile... That's my orange chicken in there. It sank in. Oh my God, that's my food. Like, um, that's not just like any food. Somewhere in there is my food. Fifth grader Kingston felt better seeing his food waste turn into rich soil and put around plants on campus. It feels good that like you're doing something to help the planet instead of just sitting and watching it like get destroyed. And a small group of fifth graders would meet every Wednesday to clean and prepare the food waste. Sloan was one of them. She felt so inspired. We did a lemonade stand at our friend's house, and uh, we made over $200, and we donated it to the NRDC, which is the national, national, or, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Defense Council, yeah. Sloan also helped create a petition to replace the plastic forks and spoons in the school cafeteria with compostable ones. Jennifer Silverstein says this composting program checks a lot of the boxes for effective, positive climate education. She's a therapist, a social worker, and part of the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America. It's like all these horrible things are happening, and there's all these adults out there who are really actively trying to make it better, and here's ways you can participate. Silverstein says part of helping kids understand the gravity of climate change is to build their window of tolerance by allowing them to move around outside and join adults in helping the planet. They also get a taste of, like, this is what it feels like to do good action in groups. For some students at the Wesley School, like Leo, the compost isn't just inspiring action, but inspiring hope. Knowing I'm a part of something good just helps me sleep at night and, like, helps me know that if we can just work together, everything is going to work out fine. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Washington to lobby Congress for funding to fight Russia. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at Republican demands that any legislation with funding for Ukraine also include changes to the U.S. immigration system. Mid-40s and sunny today, mostly clear and low 30s tonight. Low 40s tomorrow, it'll be mostly sunny and windy. It's 38 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Boston-based State Street is laying off 1,500 employees. Leaders with the financial services giant say the cuts are part of an effort to streamline business. It's unclear how many of those workers are based in Massachusetts. 
Daryl's Corner Bar and Kitchen in Roxbury will temporarily close its doors following its upcoming New Year's Eve bash. The bar has been in business for more than 65 years. Current owner Nia Grace says it's time for a major refresh, which includes a new name. The rebranded spot is expected to reopen sometime next year. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings, Gather Around, Let's Feast, and the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars. Because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. Poland's parliament has voted in a new prime minister, ending eight years of right-wing nationalist rule that chipped away at the country's democratic institutions. Liberal opposition leader Donald Tusk is the new prime minister of the biggest country on the European Union's formerly communist eastern flank. In a speech this morning to Parliament, Tusk promised to restore democratic norms and mend ties with the European Union. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us now from Warsaw, where he's been following the transfer of power. Good morning, Rob. Morning, Leila. So Donald Tusk's very different Donald than the American political leader here, right? Different politics. It's a big day for democracy <laughs> yeah. in Europe. So how Very is, different Donald. Yeah. How is Tusk going to change Poland as prime minister? Yeah, well, after his coalition government is officially sworn in tomorrow, Tusk is heading straight to Brussels for a European Union summit. And his first job will be to thaw relations between Poland and the EU. Poland's previous government run by the right-wing Law and Justice Party, despised the EU. The Mm. party felt Brussels threatened the country's sovereignty. Uh, The relationship got so bad that the EU froze more than $100 billion worth of pandemic funds to Poland because of the damage that Law and Justice had inflicted on both the country's judicial branch and on its free press, violating EU democratic norms. Uh, This week, Tusk says he will work on unblocking that money uh, when he meets with EU leaders. And that's a lot of money. Will he be able to accomplish that? Probably. Uh, He is the former president of the European Council, the executive branch of the EU, and he has close relationships with EU leaders from his years in Brussels. So this should be an easy lift for him. So how easy will it be for him to undo the damage to these democratic institutions in Poland that law and justice inflicted in its eight years of power? Yeah, you've hit upon the difficult part that lies ahead for Tusk and his left-center government. Law and Justice had a lot of time to dismantle key aspects of the Polish judiciary. They installed judges who are loyal to Law and Justice, and removing these judges will be difficult from a legal standpoint. The other challenge is that as leader of the new government, Donald Tusk will need to form a good working relationship with Polish President Andrzej Duda, who has veto powers over many of the changes that Tusk will want to make. Duda aligns himself with the Law and Justice Party, and he's not going to make it easy for this new government. But this is not the first time that Tusk has been prime minister, so he may find some you know, creative workarounds there. Okay, so you're in Warsaw. How are people reacting to this transfer of power? Uh, here in Warsaw, this is you know this is a liberal European capital, and it is just jubilant. I, I spent yesterday at a movie theater that was showing Law and Justice's final session of Parliament, oh. which lasted seven hours. People stayed there that long, wow. and they were playing this on two big screens. Both theaters were packed. I spoke with theatergoer uh, Maria Savinska there. Here's what she said. 
when you want to celebrate something, you want to celebrate with people, and we are celebrating the change of government, really. The change from autocracy to democracy again. It's very important for me, and I've been, I've been watching this on YouTube since the beginning of the new parliament. So when there was a possibility to come and just celebrate it with other people, that was, I mean, it's incredibly nice and I like it. And Leila, you know, she mentioned watching Parliament on YouTube. The live stream of Poland's uh, parliamentary debates on YouTube Mm -hmm. now has 10 times more subscribers than a year ago, evidence that many young people are getting involved in the inner workings of Poland's democracy. NPR's Rob Schmitz watching politics on the big screen from Saw. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the final day of the UN Climate Summit in Dubai, plus the latest on the challenges involved in getting humanitarian aid to people in Gaza. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com and barely read books of Sudbury, proudly sponsoring WBUR's reading of A Christmas Carol to benefit Rosie's Place. Rare books for gifts at barelyreadbooks.com. I'm Robin Young. President Biden has warned Israel's prime minister not to repeat the mistakes the U.S. made after 9-11. We will look at lessons from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and what they will tell us about the Israel-Hamas war with military analyst Andrew Basevich. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. A new Labor Department report shows that inflation rose at a slower pace in November, mainly due to falling gas prices. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is on Capitol Hill this morning to push for more aid in his country's fight against Russia. And Harvard's highest governing body is throwing its support behind school president Claudine Gay to keep her job. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Clear skies in mid-40s today. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight and a few clouds move in. Mostly sunny and low 40s tomorrow with some gusty winds. It's 38 degrees in Boston. An epic loss for Google. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where shoppers can find a great Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine for everyone on their list this holiday season. Total Wine and More. Drink responsibly. Be 21. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Google has lost an antitrust lawsuit brought by Epic Games. Epic makes the popular Fortnite video game. It accused the search giant of being a monopoly, specifically when it comes to Google's App Store. Epic says Google has app developers over a barrel if they want to be on Google's App Store, extracting exorbitant fees and other concessions. Epic actually sued Apple over the same issues, but mostly lost that case. The difference between the two? One was decided by a jury, the other by a judge. Marketplace's Nova Safo has the details. It took a federal jury in San Francisco less than four hours to reach a unanimous verdict against Google in a case that could upend the way customers access and use apps across mobile devices. 
Epic Games accused Google, as it did Apple, of financially squeezing app developers, forcing them to pay high fees of up to 30% of online transactions and using illegal tactics to ward off competing payment systems and app stores. Central in the Google case was the charge that it ties together the ability for apps to be on its app store with a requirement that they use Google's billing service. In the Apple case, a judge said Epic had not presented enough evidence that Apple ran a monopoly. An appeals court reaffirmed that decision, and both Apple and Epic have asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. Google says it will also appeal the jury's verdict. Its lawyers argue that, unlike Apple, Google at least allows competing app stores to exist on Android devices. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Consumer prices rose 0.1% in November after being flat in October. Over the previous 12 months, prices rose 3.1%. That's an improvement over October. Taking out food and energy, core inflation was up 0.3% month-to-month, 4% over the year. With that, let's see how markets felt about it. Let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 1 to 2 tenths percent range, with Dow futures up 71 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.221%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by the American Opportunity Index, a new ranking of how well companies invest in talent and advance employees' careers. More at AmericanOpportunityIndex.org. The Biden administration wants $50 billion in aid to Ukraine and another $14 billion to Israel. Republicans want, in exchange, changes to the immigration system, restricting the asylum process, for, for example. Negotiations are up against a tight deadline. Congress is going into recess for the rest of the year on Friday. Not making this any easier is the fact that immigration is a fraught and emotional topic. Meaningful reform has eluded the U.S. for decades. But what happens if we try and strip out some of the emotion and take a look at immigration through the lens of economics? What can we learn? Zeke Hernandez is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, and he's here to talk about it. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. When it comes to the economics of immigration, there is the big one, immigration and its effect on wages and jobs. So let's start there. Does immigration reduce wages? The short answer is no. (laughs) When you have these newcomers, they're also growing the economy. So it's not just the supply of workers that increases, but the demand for other things also increases, which means the economic pie is bigger, which is why there's not zero-sum competition. The other reason is that someone who's worried about immigrants taking jobs or lowering wages is often assuming that an immigrant worker is identical to a native worker, but they're not. For example, we know that immigrants take and want different jobs, for example, in farms, in factories, in construction that natives simply won't do. Some people will say it's not that natives won't do jobs, it's just that you know we have to pay them more to get them to do those jobs, so we don't actually need immigrants to do them. Yeah, I I understand. Again, we have no evidence to support that. And in many sectors, we do have very clear evidence that natives simply will not do the jobs. So Michael Clemens has a study looking at North Carolina farm jobs in 2011. In that year, because of the aftermath of the financial crisis that North Carolina was still suffering, there were half a million unemployed North Carolinians. And 
there were 6,000 job openings in North Carolina farms. Out of those 6,000 jobs, there were 268 applications from native workers. Of those, all were hired. 163 of them showed up to work and only seven finished the harvest, <laughs> right? So that's pretty stark. Is there an economic need for immigrants or more specifically, where is there an economic need for immigrants? So here's some facts. Immigrants are 18% of the labor force, okay? But they are 45% of workers in household services, 36% in clothing manufacturing, 33% in agriculture, 32% in hospitality, where you see sectors that immigrants are disproportionately represented in the workforce, those are the kinds of jobs where we really need immigrants. New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently said New York would have to cut its budget to accommodate the hundreds of millions of dollars spent on housing and influx of migrants. You know, presumably many of these people do end up working, generating economic activity, paying taxes even, but they also use social services like the mayor was complaining about. So what about that situation? How does that net out? There is evidence showing that every first-generation immigrant on average costs the state $1,600. But when you go to the second and third generation, that is the children and grandchildren of those immigrants, states collect a lot more than that $1,600. They collect $3,000 across the two generations. So fair point, but the wrong conclusion would be to say, therefore, don't allow immigrants in because in the long run, the economies of these states would be worse off. Zeke Hernandez is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. His new book, out in June, is called The Truth About Immigration, Why Successful Societies Welcome Newcomers. Professor Hernandez, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Our producers are Naomi Rainey, Liz Maie, Nick Perez, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. As you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. A Morning Edition host, Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.